Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Entangling Vines, Case 25. Sekiso's Top of a Pole. Sekiso asked, How would you step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole? Good afternoon. On this 12th of September, the 52nd anniversary session for New York Zendo Shogogi opened yesterday with some very powerful remarks by Shingeroshi, our abbot reminding us of what happened on September 11th, 2001, in the very city, on the very granite rock island of Manhattan, where New York Zendo Shoboji has its home. Roshi said, everybody remembers where they were that day. Yet it's also nice to be able to say, we have practitioners now in our Sangha who were not yet born that day. And life has continued, not that challenges have not continued, but what seemed so dark to overcome at the time is something we cherish for the humanity that it unleashed, for that coming closer together, for that stepping out of the immediate circle of one's own humanity, one's own self-fixation of just talking about what is good for me, Loss is a great teacher, but as we have learned also, every three days now, an equal loss in terms of numbers is sustained through the sickness of COVID-19. Extraordinary times, really, really extraordinary times we live in. But 
in the same sense that I said we have young people who were born after the terrible events of that September in the year 2001. There are young people and people not born yet who will carry forward the practice and the heart of humanity that we are nurturing here all together. Now in the Zendo, sitting with masks again, one step closer to being able to resume the practice as a community facing each other, facing our common challenges, facing our common humanity. So today, the koan is case number 25 of the collection Entangling Vines, the Shumon Katoshu. It's very short. It's a very short case. A few characters in the original Chinese, a little longer when read in the Kambun way, the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters. And the version that I read, the Sekiso Osho Iwak, Hyakshaku no Kanto ni Ikange Ayumi o Susumen, is the Kambun reading that is printed in the book of the Roshi Domai Jimyo, the latest and really wonderful edition of the Shuman Katushu in Japanese. However, in order to be always sure, I have the very great pleasure to uh, work with somebody in the Sangha, Gemyo-san, who is so kind to check over my Kambun. And he pointed out, since this is a case that is also part of the Mumonkan, it would be a good idea to look it up, how it is uh, that other Roshis read the Kambun. And there's another reading, the Sekiso Osho Iwaku, Yakshaku Kanto, Ikan Niho Susumen. This is how Genpo Roshi, Genpo Roshi has the Kambun transcribed in his Teisho on the Mumonkan. For us, it doesn't make so much difference. Uh, a little bit what was pointed out, the difference between the two readings is one of them is like stepping off with a focus more on the first step while the other reading has a little more going forward from rather than concentrating on that very first step. It's interesting, little tiny differences can give different flavors to this practice, to every koan. And that's a wonderful thing to know and to be able to also confer with somebody who is willing to do that and who knows. So who is this Sekiso? As you know, the usual way of treating a case that is classic like this is to look at who appears in this case. Really nobody is appearing in the case because there is no actor, there's just a questioner. And the questioner here is Sekiso. Sekiso is a name that basically points to the abbot of a specific mountain in China 
mountain standing for the monastery, the monastery where the assembly practiced. And of course, over time, there are several abbots who would be called Sekiso because several abbots were the, heading that mountain. But by going through history, by now it seems kind of settled that the Sekiso that is meant here is Sekiso Soen. And Sekiso, Sekiso Soen lived from 986 until 1039. He appears in 11 cases in the Shuman Katoshu, in the Entangling Vines. And when you read some literature about Edin Zazen and about the corn literature, you might come across his nickname, which is Jimmyo. Often he's called Jimmyo. He was born in Guangzhou and his family name was Li. He became a monk fairly late at, Steve, at that time, 22 years old, was like midlife almost at that time in China. So he was 22 when he became a monk. And he joined the assembly under a teacher by the name of Funyo Zensho. Funyo Zensho, we know that name from the chanting of the Tedai Dempo, is in the fifth generation after Rinzai Gigen. For two years, the teacher, Funyo, gave Sekiso the silent treatment. He would not let Sekiso come and do Doksan. And when he said something, he would put him down in front of everybody else, in front of the assembly, berating Sekiso. But Sekiso did not complain. Two years, it took two years for his feelings to mount to the point that he went and complained, finally. What did he get? Another tongue lashing in front of everybody. But he had enough at that time, Sekiso. He took a deep breath. And just as he started to form his first word on his lips, his teacher put out his hand and covered up Sekiso's mouth. At that moment, Sekiso had a deep awakening. He stayed for another seven years with the teacher. It's an interesting description of some ways of practice. We don't have to expect to go to Doksan and receive anything specific. In the case of Sekiso, he wouldn't even make it through the door. 
a hallmark of the Rinzai teaching is that the Rinzai Zen teacher deprives the student, taking away, depriving, depriving, depriving. Sekiso was deprived of even seeing Funyo Zensho. And apparently it worked. Something built up, something clarified. When the complaint came, the whole story played out and the teaching was a silent teaching of just putting the teacher's hand over the mouth of Sekiso. It's a wonderful thing to know. And it speaks also to the character of Sekiso. He was exceptionally serious in practicing. And I'm sure there are some who are listening to this who have heard this before, but Sekiso is used as a, one of the examples, Jimyo, how to devote oneself to Zen practice. He was really extraordinarily serious. He would do Zazen all night, all day, get up to eat, go to the bathroom, sit more, barely sleep. And what would be the result of that? One would become very, very tired. So when he became tired, He pulled out of his sleeve an awl and he would jab it into his thigh to stay awake. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not advocating for that kind of practice. But what it shows is to what kind of length we might have to go to fully engage in this investigation. I've several times uh, proposed that we should buy a couple of owls and put them up at the store at the monastery, but I think the, the, the number would still be the same. So Jimio, he would stab himself when he became sleepy. And after his awakening, he headed several temples and Sekiso, of course, was one of them. In Konansho, that's the name of the province in China, how you pronounce it in Japanese. So he did not live very long 53, 54 years young, he passed away. Yet, in that short time, he had over 50 Dharma heirs, which is a very large number. Most important ones are Yogi Hoi, who founded the branch of Rinzai Zen in which we find ourselves nowadays, the yogi lineage. Another student founded the Oryu lineage. 
and we have heard about that in several, many of the cases of singularity. So that is who we are dealing with, Sekiso, very, very serious. The koan itself, as I pointed out with the reading, is also found as a fuller, longer koan in the gateless barrier, the Mumonkan as case number 46, the main case. And Seki Susoan asked the same question. And although it is ascribed to him, it's not in the, in the record of Seki Susoan, the koan we can't find it really there. It's also to be found in the Shoyoroku, which is the book of equanimity. And that's case number, I think it's uh, 79. So what is this koan about? How would you step forward from the top of a 100 foot pole? Just visualize it. And one of the first questions that might come up to you is, well, how do you get to that top of the pole? There is some kind of story before this here. You don't just wake up one morning, find yourself standing off the top, on the top of a pole, unless you are some kind of acrobat who sleeps standing up on 30 meter high poles. How does one get there? And what does it stand for? I'm sure you have tried to climb poles or the evil gym teacher tried to get you up to the top of such a pole. It's not easy. It's not easy. You have to learn how to hoist yourself up. And it can be a struggle because there is something that is working against us if we go up that pole. And that is gravity. So how do we get up the pole? And what is it that makes up makes us wanting to go up the pole? These are very important questions. Of course, it's an image for the practice of Zen. For the practice of Zen, where we have to work against that gravity and where we have to engage in this practice to have some kind of movement that in this case, of course, points upwards to the top. We all know that in this practice, there is struggle. And it's an important part of our Zen practice. The struggle is important, not, the, not what the content of the struggle is, but doing it and going through it and becoming aware of that, what holds us back. Sometimes, you know, Zen practice, when I first tried to visualize it, felt to me like walking up a moving escalator the wrong way. 
you walk, you go up, and then you get tired and you stop. And before you even take a breath, you're back at the bottom and you have to start walking again, walk. And if you're not careful, you become too, too fixated on coming, you fall down. And of course, if you fall down, you end up at the bottom of the escalator again. The pole is the same thing. You might climb up and then just as you come close to the top, you find out that maybe you shouldn't have had some greasy sandwich for lunch because the pole gets thinner. And as you get up, you find yourself several feet down. So this is the nature of the practice. But in this case, already, the person has made it to the top of the pole. So to summarize the two questions, why do we get up to the pole? Why are we trying to go up that pole? Is one important question for us to answer. And maybe we can't put it into words, but maybe we know intuitively without having to say anything. What pulls us down? What is it that pulls us down? What is that gravity in our practice? Or what is that center of gravity that we need to attend to so we don't get just pulled down? And of course, the question number three would be, what pole? So if we work long enough and go through these arduous times in Zen practice, and we learn to laugh at the, about that when we get up a few feet and we have to learn to laugh at it and enjoy the up and down. It's a lesson in itself. But one day, one comes to the top of that pole. And then we'll try to stand up there. Standing up on the top of a pole is some kind of acrobatic thing, I have to say. I hope nobody's afraid of, of heights. So once up, there, the question becomes here, how do you step forward? How do you go forward from there? And for that, I would like to read you something that goes back to the first Japanese ancestor in our lineage, Nampo Jomyo. Nampo Jomyo, or the, post, the posthumous name is Dai O Kokushi. His student was Dai To Kokushi, and then Kanzan Egen, the founder of Miyoshinji. So, this Dai O Kokushi, he lived uh, from 1235 until 1309, and he became a monk in Japan at the age of 15. 
and he studied the Mikyo Buddhism, that's the earlier Buddhism that came like in the 8th, 9th century to Japan. But then he decided to go to China and to study with the Chan masters. One day while he was serving as an attendant to the last ancestor in the Chinese lineage, Kido Chigu, he had his deep awakening. Then he came back to Japan and he had a monastery and he took care of many, many different uh, ways of Zen practice, lay people as well as ordained people. And what I find especially interesting here is that this here is a uh, letter that he wrote per, at the request of a nun who studied with him and who was going back after living with him in the monastery for so uh, many years. And the nun's name was Gentai. Gentai Zenmin. Daiyo Kokshi writes, Gentai Zenmin, from the capital city, her determination in seeking the way is keen and she often comes to inquire further into the basis and the conditions of this great matter. One day I said to her, at the top of the 100 foot pole, go forward. She said, at the top of the 100 foot pole, there is no place to go. I said, where there is no place to step, go a hundred thousand steps farther. Only then will you be able to walk alone in the red skies, pervading the universe as your whole body. She agreed and smiled. That's all. Although she has not yet gotten the gist of it, she is not the same as ordinary folk who get stuck on even ground. Now, you want to return to your old capital and have come with incense in your sleeve to ask for this letter. I once wrote a verse of praise on the master of Iksan in Dario. So I will write that for you. Atop the pole, walk on by the ordinary route. It is most painful when taking a tumble in a valley Earth, mountains and rivers cannot hold you up and space suppresses laughter, filling a donkey's cheeks. I ask you, Zenmi, Zennan, Gentai, to bring this up and look at it time and time again.
how to go forward from atop the pole. Suddenly, when the time comes, you can go forward a step and space will surely swallow a laugh. Remember, remember. So this is the letter that Daiokoshi wrote to his nun, Gentai, who was going to go back. He references Iksan of Dario. And of course, Iksan of Dario was working on the same koan, how to proceed forward from a top 100 foot pole. He worked on it for three years. And one day, while he was out riding atop his donkey, crossing a wooden bridge on a stream, a plank broke. The donkey tumbled, he fell off into the stream to a great awakening, accompanied by the laugh of the donkey. <laughs> so that's where this uh, laughter filling a donkey's cheeks comes from. Now this traditional interpretation of the top of the pole is when we are able in our zazen, in our meditation, to go to that place where everything falls off, where we completely disappear, the world disappears. It's a complete lights out, no time, no seer, nothing to be seen. It's a freeing, the falling off of body and mind. That's where it usually points to the great esoteric death, we could say. And the question really then is, what next? What next? There is this pole, which is also a wonderful image for an limit. There is only so far we can go. So far. In the teaching of Joshu Roshi, he speaks about contraction and expansion to talk about this. And both of these activities can only go so far. You can expand, 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 but then you, re you, you reach that, what is called the ultimately large, Gokudai. And then, uh, what then? Should we get stuck here? No, no. Smaller, 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 smaller. Smaller, 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 smaller. Until that Goksho, that ultimately small is reached. And everything falls off. So there are limits to everything. We know it from our breath. How deep can we inhale? 
where do we reach that point that there is no more need to inhale any further? Or it is frankly impossible to inhale any further. Exhalation, the same process. Exhaling until there's no more place to exhale. Goksho and Goktai. And describing it as this seems to be two-dimensional, you know? Two-dimensional because we say in, out, in, out. But what we are asked to do here is to also ask us ourselves the question, where does directionality end? Where do we get in this practice to a place to an understanding, to a realization, to an actualization, that directionality is not the main thing anymore. How can we step out of that two-dimensional or n-dimensional, where n is a small number, way of thinking and cutting up this life? Stepping out of directionality. And as it says in a poem by Chosa that is attached to this koan in the Mumonkan case 46, it's clearly spelled out there. When you step off that pole, when you go further, you have to go further in the 10 directions, not one direction, no more just up and certainly no stop. I think I remember that Shinji Roshi had said she would be speaking on the Jugyu, uh, the, the 10 ox herding pictures this year coming up. And I look really forward to it because this context gives already a hint towards that. Uh, in that picture number nine, reaching the source, the poem goes, too many steps have been taken. Returning to the root and the source, better to have been blind and deaf from the beginning. Dwelling in one's true abode, unconcerned with and without. The river flows tranquilly on and the flowers are red. Yet we learn through our practice that this is not a state. What is the adjective that goes with state? Static. Static is fixation. Fixation is stagnation. Stagnation is not alive. So when we begin to be able to have access to the top of the pole, to the top of the mountain, sitting atop 
the solitary peak. It cannot be stagnant. Even if you brought with you a big bundle of food, you will run out. It will be very lonely on top of that mountain. And we have to step forward again. The person sitting atop a 100-foot pole, though they gained entry, this is not yet the real. Atop a pole, they should step forward. The universe in all directions is the whole body. The idea of attainment in Zen, of attaining the summit, of attaining the top of the pole is an idea that we ourselves have to go beyond. The importance of climbing up, of the climb, and of reaching that is not altered by that. But once we know or really don't know, then it becomes important to not stop. The term or the word that came to mind when I prepared this koan today was dynamic dissolution. Not anything static, not falling apart, but just falling, not anything static. Dynamic dissolution. Not only dynamic dissolution, but the path of going forward from that top of the pole, from the top of the mountain, doesn't lead in one direction. It's also a dissolution of direction and of dimensionality. Not up or down, not forward or back but into everything. Where does that lead us? You know, it reminded me when I first started as the abbot of the Cambridge Buddhist Association in 2004, one of the first things that I participated in was a Vesak in May, which is like uh, in the Theravada tradition, the holiday where you unite in all three main, uh, the birthday of the Buddha, the awakening of the Buddha and the passing of the Buddha are all celebrated on that same Vesak day. And I was the host. It was arranged before I became the abbot. So everything was arranged already. And I just sat there with the Theravada monks and teachers, and I was the last in the row. And so everybody was supposed to speak for maybe four or five minutes. And there were five of those teachers and myself. Now, of course, all of them spoke for much longer. And it was very interesting to listen to what was said. Oh, all the young children should become monks and the teaching of the Buddha is so wonderful and you follow the teaching, you will be saved. 
and it went on yada 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 uh, not to put it down in any way but it was very very much uh, a preaching and the listeners were listening to it so finally when the hour was over and I was supposed to say anything there was just a minute left and what I said at that point was we have heard about the wonderful teachings of the Buddha who can save all beings permit me though to ask why hasn't it worked yet eyes opened mouths were gaping well why hasn't it worked yet and we should ask ourselves the same question why is it that the zen practice has not saved the world yet how is it that we still have strife that we still have people who are just driven by greed anger and delusion very legitimate question why has the wisdom not yet saved the world and that's the same question as why or how do we step forward from that top of the pole once we have that center of gravity of the world in us and we have that awakening to the true equality of all beings and when there is no other anymore we have to go down the mountain we have to descend that pole and we have to attend to the 10,000 things because from that point we return to our family no more distance no more directionality it's forward and backward at the same time and as we know society does not change as quickly as we as individuals do we know how arduous it is to engage in this practice to ask these very deep questions to struggle our way up that pole and to arrive at the deep understanding or understanding is a terrible word i should wash my mouth out at the deep reality that there is no other there is no separation and from there to do the work in the world to make it a better place how great of a challenge that is we all know however compared to the 13th century where we had human beings with the same awakening the same awakening of the dharma eye and the heart yet not the means that we have nowadays nowadays 
technology, science, and goodwill of a large number of human beings are available. The synergies that are here can help us make that Dharma move the world forward and to make a true difference, not just for our own sake, not trying to make others climb up that pole. You have to have that urge to go up there. Nobody's helped by saying, you have to climb up that pole, it will be good. Ah, it's not going to work. But once we step forward into those 10 directions and manifest in the world that non-dimensional, non-directional presence of an awakened human heart, then we are answering the question of how to step forward, not by an abstract answer, not by anything that is labeled, but by really living out and actualizing the path of the Bodhisattva. It's not a small thing to ask, but as we find out, once you stand on the top of that pole, no question remains of what has to be done. And the question, why hasn't this worked after 2,500 years of this wonderful wisdom? Don't spend time thinking of why not. But let's all contribute to the answer in the way we are, in the way how we relate to each other how we relate to what is called the environment, to all sentient and insentient beings. This is the true answer. And as Hakun Sutan, another great ancestor, always pointed us to, even if we do that from the bottom of our hearts, not yet, not yet. Further, further, we shall march on into the 10 directions in the world as one body. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.